appreciate you for doing this. I read an article in the, um, I actually had to go back to it this morning because it's been so long since we scheduled it, but in the Texas Tribune and are you with a nonprofit or an organization that you're representing? So I actually just accepted a position that's national. Um, I'm strategic advisor for funders for birth justice and equity. I can put that in the chat. Okay. That's cool. I'll, um, I'll link it in the, uh, in the, in the show notes. But I also, a lot of the work that I've been doing locally has been with the maternal health equity collaborative Okay. as a community. Advocate. Is that a organization, a Texas based organization or is that, uh, yes. okay. And for, for people that don't know, and it was shocking for me to learn that uh, African-American women are more susceptible to birth um, injury or even dying while giving birth. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know that. So can you share a little bit about that and some data behind that? Sure. Oh, are we going? Oh, we're going. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're going. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. You, just like men taking pictures, you got to count down. Uh, three, two. Well, I feel, you know, I, I used to do that and I feel like it like creates like a little tension. You know what I mean? Like everyone's kind of like upright. I feel like if you just like start the conversation naturally, then it kind of just progresses. You know what I mean? But yeah, no, it's all good. Either way, it's all good. Okay. Um, so yeah, um, actually in the United States as a whole, um, you see a disparity in birth outcomes for black women. Um, it can be nationally. It's, almost three times as likely that a black woman dies from pregnancy related causes. Um, But even if you drill down further, for instance, for New York City, it's 12 times as likely. Um, In different parts of Texas, it looks different, but it's two to three times as likely in the state of Texas. Um, Similarly, we have higher rates of infant mortality as well as um, premature babies. So across the board, we see lots of disparities and um, that's irregardless of income. There's actually an article that um, came out recently from the New York Times that is a really comprehensive study over several years out of California that showed even the wealthiest black women still have worse outcomes than the poorest white women in California. Hmm. So that's very poignant. Yeah, no, that's that's mind-boggling. Is there a, a number one factor that's can be correlated with all these, or is it, it kind of a little bit of of everything? You know, I think that there are multiple factors, but the one that I think people are still having challenges wrapping their mind or their heads around is systemic racism. Mm. Um, And I think I I say systemic racism, I think interpersonal racism, you know, exists at a a micro level. Um, But when you think about the building of a structure and think of our country as a structure um, within it, there are systems and the majority of those systems, when they were built, were built in a time where the access and and the you know support did not exist for black people as an example the financial institution or the criminal justice institution and that 
also exists within healthcare, right? Mm. And so um, you have systems that have existed for, you know, over a hundred years that were instituted in a time when black people weren't even considered to be fully human, right? Or, and then it kind of progressed to separate, but not equal. Mm. Uh, you had your own hospitals or you couldn't birth in the hospital. Um, and now to the current place that we're at, where we're trying to course correct, but we haven't in many cases gone back to address the system and the foundation of the, of the healthcare system. Can you define for me, because I'm, I'm ignorant, can you define what systemic racism is? Sure. So, and you're not ignorant, by the way. <laughs> well, I've, there's multiple definitions and depending which article you read, uh, who you're talking to, everyone has a different definition. So I don't know if there's like a global agreed definition. Um, is there for anything? Uh, I don't I think don't so. Yeah. But <laughs> I would say um, what I would share is that systemic racism is racism that exists within systems. So that would look like policies and um, practices, right, that exclude or include um, certain populations of people and marginalized people are negatively impacted. Um, that would be because of their race, mm. right? Um, that would be an, a definition of systemic racism. And then when you go to interpersonal racism, that's where people kind of get stuck. Of, you know, I'm not racist. You know, I love everybody and I have friends and family and all of that. But even at that level, we have all kinds of prejudices and biases, but the difference between a prejudice and a bias and it kind of spilling over into racism is that it's specific to race and the person that is imposing the racist behavior has power and resources, right? So not only do I think something negatively about you or, you know, act some way that's harmful to you, but I have more power to injure you. Does that make no, sense? No, that's that's a that's a great definition. So systemic racism and in healthcare specifically, and that's that's kind of what we're talking about. Does that mean no matter who's taking care of the the person or who's providing the healthcare, no matter what kind of person that they are, uh, the negative effects of systemic racism still exist. Yes. Okay. Um, and that's a really good question, but we also know statistically that when a white provider, um, is caring for a black patient, whether it be the mom or the baby, there's a higher rate of mortality. Mm. And the first time I heard that statistic, I was like, that cannot be true in the 21st century. Like, why is that a thing? Um, but it is absolutely um, proven by data. And uh, so, uh, yeah. What are the demographics in, in Texas? Um, last I checked... I think there, and I think uh, it was 40% white people, 40% Hispanic, and then 11% or 12%. Is that still accurate of African Americans? That's, That's still pretty about accurate. Although we're, you know, continue, we're actually seeing a 
a decrease in people that identify as white. So yeah, there's um, actually seeing a decline in the white population and an increase in the Latinx population. Um, and then for the black population, it's staying pretty steady. But if you go to cities like Austin, where I live, there's actually a decline, an overall increase in the population in Austin and for every demographic but Black people. And we're actually seeing a decline. We're the only major city in the country that has an increasing population and a decreasing Black population. We're at 6% and dropping Hmm. currently. What do you think the reason is? There's a lot of reasons. Um, I actually am a part of an organization that um, it's called the African-American Leadership Institute. And we worked with a nonprofit in town called Measure and did a study of over 300 um, people who, Black people who lived in Austin and asked what was the reason why people leave. And the top reason was affordability. Mm. But just behind it was lack of belonging. And right under that was racism. And um, when you talk native Austinites, and a lot of people don't know this, but when Austin was first settled in for, you know, many years uh, after the settlement of the city, Black people were actually the majority in Austin. Um, Upwards of 50 to 60% of the population um, were native um, Austinites that were black or indigenous. And to go from that <laughs> to less than 6% yeah. is mind blowing. Yeah. So I'm from Dripping Springs originally. Okay. I, I, okay. I, I live, so. I live near uh, Houston right now. And same thing. A, a lot of my family members, a lot of my friends that were native Dripping Springs, Austin, they all left or they are, are leaving because of the affordability uh, but I didn't know racism mm-hmm. was one. I, I feel like there's a barrier that exists between the Hispanic and, and African-American community. And our view on racism is just completely different. Um, for I, I guess we yeah. just experience different things um, historically Absolutely. and even in current, uh, you know, what happens currently today. Um, I, I feel like, um, and I'm definitely not like a voice for like the Hispanic people, but I feel like the Hispanic population by and large gets left out of, uh, race talks or when it comes to, uh, diversity and inclusion programs, it's kind of like, it's like the white people and the black people and then the Hispanics get kind of left out. Do you kind of see the same thing? You know, I, I think that's an interesting point to make. I think, you know, the history of this country in particular, I think when you kind of pan out to our more global view um, that the conversation shifts. But when you think about like the history of this country, um, slavery is so embedded into like the building of this country. Um, And that was, you know, Native Africans and white people, (laughs) Um, that that's where and a lot of the systemic and structural racism originally was, you know, black people were the most impacted. I think when you kind of come zero in, especially on states 
that have um, borders, international borders, um, specifically to the um, Caribbean and or to Mexico. Um, and Texas, the majority of Texas used to be Mexico. You know, right. that's, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Um, that it looks different, right? Or California. Um, I absolutely agree that we we are both facing some hard things, but they just look a little bit different. I actually am biracial. I'm black and Mexican. Okay. Um, and, you know, and not because of my nationality or ethnic background, but I'm very passionate just about social justice for anybody so that we all have the same life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And I think the reality of the situation is that we have a a country that's built on white supremacy. And so you have every other population, marginalized population that is kind of seeing some inequities. And sometimes I think maybe we get into a little bit of a, a competition of who's, you know, who has it worst when the reality is we just need to like focus on the structure so that we can all have it. Yeah. Better. Right. Yeah. No, I fully agree. Do, you know, the history of racism is, is still alive and well. And, um, but do you think we'll get to a point where we don't, like, it's not a thing and we have to talk about it? Like the, the generation of kids today, like my kids are biracial. They're, they're, my wife is white and, and Hispanic and, mm-hmm. I, and I'm Hispanic. And, I'm wondering if, um, you know, 20 years from now, if they happen to look more white, if that's uh, if if they'll be classified as a certain type of person just because they're they're fair skin um, mm-hmm. or, you know, what the future will look like. Like, do, do you ever see us getting to a point where like we'd never have to talk about racism? Um, like a, like a, a perfect example is I was watching, you know, the Super Bowl or the, 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 the game was on this weekend and the reporter was asking, um, the, the football analyst was, was saying, Hey, this is a historic time because both QBs are African-American. And, and so what do you think about that? And the coach that they were asking was actually African-American. And he was like, can we not classify them as African-American and just classify them as human beings and as two great QBs. I'm wondering when we like transition to that. Do you think that's ever a possibility? Right. Well, you know, I think that there's a lot that has to shift and, and I agree and I agree with both points of view. Right. Um, even when we think about, you know, history in this country, and we have African-American history and we have black, we're in February right now, we have Black History Month, right? And you're like, well, why is it separate? And it's because it has not been included in the totality of American history, right? Um, and in all of these different in- industries and sectors, there been barriers, whether it's, you know, it was 1990s and the 2000s before we had black people winning Grammys and Oscars for the first time. Right. Mm. So um, we got to get past some of these first. (laughs) Yeah. And um, we should definitely be seen for um, what we bring and, you know, 
who we are and not just for our race, but it is also important for people to acknowledge the fact that for so long, there has been a lack of opportunity and access, right? And to celebrate moving forward. Um, and I think, you know, to your point, at the beginning of the conversation, you were like, I didn't know that, you know, Black women were dying at disproportionate rates. Like, if we don't talk about it, mm. then how can we heal from it, right? So I think it it's kind of like, you know, you have kids, I have kids. Like, some people take the approach, you know, sex is a dirty little word. <laughs> we don't talk about sex and we definitely don't talk about sex in front of our kids. But then you have them go to school and other places out in the world and get misinformation that can harm them. And so I think, you know, as a as a community and a global community, like if we continue to like kind of stifle those conversations and don't own it, and meet each other where we are, then we will continue to harm each other. So I, we're not there yet. I'm not, and I can't see into the future. So I don't know that we will ever get there. Mm. However, I'm hopeful, and I, you know, I try to do my part to move us in the right direction. But I don't shy away from those those hard conversations either. Yeah. No. And it, these conversations are are definitely needed. While you were talking, I I, I was curious about the demographics and hospitals. You know, what's the the racial makeup of these uh, delivery nurses in hospitals? Are they mostly mostly white nurses or is it? Um, I would say, you know, obviously um, that can still vary regionally, but uh, in a more general um, way, it is mostly white women. Um, we see that in the nursing profession and we also see that in education. Um, and so... That is another um, research proven way to improve outcomes is to increase the number of healthcare professionals, um, the workforce pipeline that are, you know, treating patients. So I'm hoping that we get to a day where, you know, we don't have to have, I don't have to have a black doctor to know that I'm going to get the best care. Right. It I love talking about um, diversity and inclusion, Nakinya. I I work in a corporate environment, and sometimes I feel like it comes off as uh, too much, especially if it's coming from a white person. Like I feel like they're trying to make up, like they're trying too hard. You know what I mean? It it's, mm-hmm. it doesn't come across as being sincere. And um, one of the conversations that we had uh, was that the makeup of 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 our company and and our team. And we needed to make it more diverse. Um, and and we were trying to actively do that. But the makeup of our community is is just that. Like there's right now, there's more white people, there's more Hispanics, and then there are African-Americans or even Asian-Americans. Um, so it's tough like to balance what what a balanced team would look like like having a, a true diverse team. I don't know what that would really look like. I don't know what the answer is because there's just more Mexicans and white people right now. Right. And, and so I think, you know, there are a couple of ways to look at this. There is, you know, reflecting the community that, that you serve, but there's also reflecting 
um, a larger community of diverse perspectives. Yeah. What we know, and I think, you know, um, specifically in the state of Texas, we actually just had um, some news headlines last week from our governor um, around no longer using diversity, equity, inclusion in state hiring. Um, but part of the reason why diversity, equity, inclusion is important is because we know that diverse perspectives allows for more innovation. Mm, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, if I'm in a room trying to solve for any given problem or to come up with a new product or solution, if I'm in a room full of all men, there's going to be a limit to, you know, how we innovate. And it's the same thing when you think about if everyone in the room is from the same socioeconomic background, same ethnic background, then we limit the, the possibilities of what we can solve for. And we also stifle the opportunities to be in genuine relationship with people who have different life experiences for, from us. You know, if the Hispanic culture, um, the older generation, they're typically not, not healthy. Um, there's a lot of health, uh, you know, it, and it, it's very nuanced. There's like food deserts and access to better healthcare, but access to better food, organic food, stuff like that. It, it, does some of that play a role in, in these uh, birth related deaths in hospitals for African-American women? Is there, is it, is it all at the hospital or is there work that can be done before the women get to the hospital? Sure. So yes. And I'm so glad that you asked that. Um, one of my, my roles is as the, um, community advocate position on the Texas Maternal Mortality and Morbidity Review Committee, big word. Basically, we're, we review all of the pregnancy-related deaths within the state of Texas. And um, we just released our report in December. And one of the things that we see in terms of our recommendations um, is the... I lost my train of thought. Sorry, there no, was a you're, you're good. Um, what were we talking about? You're talking about the uh, the health of the women. Uh, a new uh, a new study yes, was released. Yes. Yeah. So we see that in terms of the recommendations that the committee makes based on reviewing these deaths, um, is that um, the there's the providers. Uh, recommendations. We see lots of um, facility recommendations, and then we also see community-based recommendations. Um, so that could also improve like nonprofits or whatever. So yes, and what you're kind of uh, leaning towards uh, in terms of factors that go into it um, are social determinants of health, hmm. right? Um, access to um, clean and, and clean water, healthy foods, being able to be physically active, um, 
there's so many different factors. And we know that historically, and this is where, you know, it becomes, it expands beyond just the Black community, I would say to the Latinx community, in some cases, rural communities, and those who are um, low socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, you have all of these factors that um, put them at higher risk for disease um, and that compromise their health. So that when once you get to the point of childbearing age, you're actually at a higher risk. Um, and I think some people want to boil it down to and say, oh, well, you know, you shouldn't eat this, or you shouldn't eat that, or, you know, if you exercised more. Um, but what we know is that people live in food deserts, right, where there is no grocery store and very little, if no, if any access to, you know, fresh um, produce and fresh food. Um, people live in places where there are no sidewalks and there are no parks and gyms. And um, and some of that also is historical and systemic racism, right? The ways that cities and governments have funded and or corporations value, you know, where they put their, their businesses. Yeah. So yes, but it's not as, you know, as simple as well, you know, those people, they need to eat better. <laughs> yeah. No, it's not. because it, Well, the access to processed food and the cost of it is just so cheap. And it's easily attainable. So if I'm, you know, if, if, if I'm hurting for money and I have kids to feed, why not get, you know, the box of food and the frozen processed food that's just a lot cheaper? Or even there's a freaking McDonald's at every corner, every street corner now, or a Sonic or a Taco Bell now. So those access to, you know, those types of foods are, are I think that that's the problem. It's just the, mm -hmm. the type of food that's, uh, that's cheap and any, anyone can get their hands on now. Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, you know, in every um, culture around the world, one of the cheapest things to um, consume is rice and beans. Mm. And you see that, you know, whether it's, you know, in different parts of Asia, um, Central and South America, North America, you know, rice and beans. Um, but that... Uh, is not everything everything in moderation, right? Um, and when you specifically look at the United States, other parts of the world, you know, there's still more agriculture and farming and more access, but we're so processed and we're so commercialized. And, you know, we live in a very capitalist society here in the United States where, you know, people don't grow, you know, their fruits and vegetables, although I'm, we're starting to see a little bit of interest in that, but, um, especially now that eggs are so expensive, everyone <laughs> wants to get some chickens, but, um, we've gotten away from that and we go with quick, fast and convenient and whatever, you know, is the right price point. And we don't have local markets and people aren't walking to go get, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables daily. And it makes a difference. You know, people eat what they can afford and they eat what they have access to. Yeah. So are, um, the organizations that you work with, are y'all helping address some of that uh, food availability and, and, and resources for the underprivileged communities? Um, I 
what we usually do well is partner. Um, there's so many things that need to be addressed. And a lot of times organizations like the ones that I work with um, are usually the most underfunded. Mm-hmm. Um, Black-led organizations typically do more work with less money. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're stretched thin just to focus on, you know, one particular area. Um so what we do best is we try to collaborate and partner with other, whether it's hospitals or um, city and government entities or um, other nonprofits that are maybe, you know, working it with the unhoused or working um, in with uh, environmental justice um, to look at the intersections and to work to improve. Um, one example of that, um, I don't know if you remember, but last year for several months, um, we had a food shortage. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, a um, formula shortage. Yep. And um, it was awful. And it was actually worse in Texas and other parts of the country. And um, I, because I work in the maternal health realm, you know, I kind of had my ear to the ground and we were talking to women who didn't have access. And what we were seeing, especially in our um, black and brown communities is that um, moms were resorting to giving, you know, rice milk or carnation, you know, whatever they, they were, you know, in desperate need of a way to feed their babies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was not, you know, something that the organizations I work with, you know, usually focused on, um, but it was a need of the community at that time. And so we pulled in other people um, that could help us. Uh, the In Austin, the uh, mayor was able to work with a vendor out of York and like purchase in bulk a bunch of formula that came to to Austin, and then he worked with key nonprofits that had the best um, connections to community to distribute. So I think that's an example of you know how we get it done, and mm. it isn't always you know our primary role, but we may be a guest or a linchpin. No, no, that's a great example. What's the perception of uh, the workers in the hospital when they're presented with the data? about African-American uh, women dying at a higher rate than other races? You said what is, like, how is it received? Yeah, like what, I mean, do they push back at all? Or are they, are they willing to help your your team and y'all's efforts? Is it a collaborative effort? If it's kind of a push, like what does that relationship look like? You know, I think that um, nobody goes into a helping um, profession, and I would say helping professions ranging from social work to healthcare, um, wanting to do harm. In fact, it, you know, it's against the Hippocratic oath. Um, but I think whether it's you know the systems and and how people are trained, right, the education that they receive, um, and just the unconscious biases that we have, you know. It's it's a reality, and so I think 
that some organizations, some you know, medical institutions are further along than others. And so they're working with and alongside of us. Um, and there are other organizations that are, you know, still, you know, trying to kind of figure it out. Um, it's it's a hard it's a hard thing to work through, right? When you're there to help people, and then you see that there are people that are being harmed yeah. because of who they are innately. No, that's yeah, that's got to be a tough situation. I, is there actual legislation being proposed? to do anything about this? I I think I recall there's like a a series of bills, right? Yeah, so Representative Sean Theory out of Houston, actually. Okay. um, She has been at the forefront of advocating for a lot of um, legislation around maternal health and maternal health equity. And she actually just um, in the last week filed a momnibus, which is a series of bills that are grouped together that are all related to maternal health. And one of them is um, to implement um, training on uh, unbiased and unconscious uh, bias training, sorry, unconscious bias training um, into both um, existing institutions where people are already doctors, nurses, but also into like nursing schools and medical schools. So that legislation is actually on the table along with um, several other bills that I think are are gonna help. Okay, are they being supported uh, across both sides of the aisle? So it's too early to tell. Um, she just filed her momnibus. Um, it has, the Speaker of the House has not yet identified his priorities yet. Although we know that another um, priority related to to maternal health is to extend Medicaid coverage to 12 months postpartum. And he has already said that that is a priority for this legislative session. Um, And that impacts uh, Black women. Um, 70% of Black women in the state of Texas um, use pregnancy Medicaid, Mm. um, but not just them exclusively. a large majority of women who are pregnant in Texas across ethnic backgrounds use Medicaid um, during pregnancy. So that's another one that um, I think we will see get a lot of attention over the next couple of months. Um, and uh, tentatively, this there seems to be a lot of support um, in the House and the Senate and um, you know bipartisan support. Um, so I'm hopeful that um, that will remain the case and that we'll see some good policy to help improve, you know, some of our outcomes. There's an element of just medical costs too, right? Like it's just the sheer amount of money it takes to get seen by a doctor. If you don't have insurance or if you're, even if you're on Medicaid, I imagine, well, also even if you have insurance, like I have insurance and it seems like it costs a lot of money to go see the doctor. Um, Is there anything being addressed about that? Um, I'm sure there is. I'm not an expert on everything, um, <laughs> but I would say one of the um, other bills that's being put forward is, for instance, to compensate doulas um, that support um, women during uh, pregnancy and childbirth and postpartum. And 
what we've seen is that when a doula is involved with a um, pregnant person, that there actually is a lower rate of intervention, which means that then there's a lower rate of morbidity and mortality and ongoing health problems, which in the end, you know, boils down to less money spent mm -hmm. on that individual, whether it's private or private insurance or Medicaid, right? Um, and I think that that's one of the keys to us, like moving this conversation along and doing what works best for everyone to improve outcomes is to know that there is still a cost, right? Um, when people are not receiving optimal health care. And like you mentioned earlier, there's a cost when um, they are not receiving optimal health care before pregnancy. So having, like you said, access to healthy foods and those kinds of things. And so putting, you know, more money into um, helping people have access to Medicaid and insurance um, and health care uh, across the lifespan is going to be a tide that rises all boats. Yeah. Is there restrictions on where women can go if they're on Medicaid compared to women if they have uh, pr private insurance? Yeah, so if um, a woman is a recipient of um, Texas Medicaid, they will go to a provider that accepts Medicaid and Medicaid reimburses at specific rates. And so each provider will determine if that is um, a choice that they make for their practice. And I can say that there has been, you know, kind of a consistent request of um, OBGYNs and medical providers to increase the reimbursement rate for them as well um, so that it is not as impactful to their bottom line, right? Mm -hmm. um, and we see specifically, you know, like in subspecialties like psych psychiatry um, and psychologists, there are sparse, if not in many parts of the state, no psychologists or psychiatrists that take Medicaid. And what we know is that nationally, mental health is actually the number one cause of pregnancy-related death. And in the state of Texas, it's number two. Um, when you boil it down, um, a large demographic in Texas is the Latinx community, and uh, mental health is the number one cause of pregnancy-related death for the Latinx community. And so being able to pay more <laughs> to these healthcare providers and mental healthcare providers would incentivize and enable them to provide services to women who really need it and in many cases save lives. What's the age range of the women that that have these birth problems? Uh, is, is there a certain age and uh, amongst the African-American women and the Latinx community? So um, a lot of that data is not necessarily broken down. What we do know is that above the age of 35, um, which is considered to be advanced maternal age, I take offense to it because I had two babies. <laughs> what is <laughs> above that? Above the age of 35. What does that mean? Is um, like it's not it's, it's not uh, ideal to get pregnant over 35? Um, it's not ideal, but it, we see that happening more and more, and especially um, with women who are in the workforce or, you know, who have advanced education, they might be delaying starting a family. Um, 
But we know that um, having a baby over the age of 30 increases your um, vulnerability for cervical cancer um, and breast cancer. We know that um, above the age of 35, um, our bodies change. And so the risk goes up, the risk for birth defects, the risk for complications. Um, over 40, it is astronomically high in terms of the risk for morbidity and mortality. So you, if you take a Black woman like myself, I'm 41, and you take, you know, the statistics of, you know, the likelihood of having a pregnancy-related morbidity and mortality, and then you stack age on top of that, it, it can be kind of scary. Um, no, not kind of, it's it's scary. Um, and so I, it's not as um, dire for the um, Mexican-American community um, or the Hispanic community rather, um, but it is still a concern. Um, and like I said, I am of a multi-ethnic background. And so it's not uncommon, um, especially on my Hispanic side of the family for women to have babies, you know, well into their forties. Um, so there are increased risks and, and there are more C-sections that happen in any time um, a birthing person has a C-section, then there's a higher risk of complication with that. One interesting thing though, that we were two points uh, specific to the Hispanic community that I wanted to share is that when we looked at the poor outcomes in the state of Texas, re in like where it's happening, uh, we see that the our higher percentages in urban and rural areas, but we actually see a lower um, percentage of pregnancy related complications and deaths um, in border towns mm. where there are higher numbers of Hispanic um, birthing people. Um, and then um, in addition to that, we now have early data that shows that Hispanic women actually had a really large disproportionate uh, negative impact um, in terms of pregnancy related death and health complications um, during COVID. Hmm. And so I think we'll see more come out on that in the next year or so um, and have to you know, ask some tough questions around that piece as well. One area I know that needs to be improved on is sexual education or sex education in public schools. I think the sex ed in public school is a freaking joke. So Texas is, is um, you know, we are unique in many ways in, in how we um, make decisions and laws and policy. And so I used to actually be a health teacher. Mm. And in Texas, that's where sex ed happens is in health. And I was a high school health teacher. And so I got to teach about reproductive health, the reproductive um, system within the body. And that's kind of how it um, is presented. You know, we couldn't necessarily talk about contraception, um, mm. Texas has, you know, been very much so of the mind of abstinence only. Um, <laughs> and that is, you know, uh, 
it is what it is, I guess I should say. Yeah, it's um, tough, right? I mean, but it's certainly, you know, I think it's going to be increasingly um, interesting over the next several years, given the recent um, laws around reproductive health. Um, yeah. Abstinence clearly not working, right? I mean, it's like it worked maybe back in the golden days or whatever, but kids are getting educated on sex with TikTok now and Instagram reels. So if, you know, the adults, the community is not educating them, they're getting education elsewhere. Um, I think that's like a big area that needs to be improved on, especially like you said, with, with, um, you know, recent legislation impacting, uh, women's healthcare in Texas specifically, we got to do something else because the teaching abstinence is not, I don't think that's the way to go. Well, and, you know, to kind of drill that further down, and I really try to um, steer clear of the landmines of these, you know, very politically charged um, topics. But what I will say is this, is that even when abortion um, was not legal before Roe v. Wade, um, people were still you know, having abortion. So when you talk about the golden age, it just looked like women having procedures from people who were not medical professionals. And there were women who died from that, whether it was a surgical um, attempt at a surgical procedure or um, the use of herbs and those kinds of things. And I think that we are going to see an a... Um, People are going to, you know, try to find solutions because for some people, um, it is a matter of survival, um, whether it's that they can't take care of a baby, um, that it compromises their mental health um, and a, a confluence of different factors. But um, it was still happening. And what we also know is that for those who are more affluent and who have access to more resor resources, um, they had other means of, you know, getting that type of health care. Texas is, is a funny state because, you know, during the whole COVID pandemic, a, a lot of majority politicians, people in the state were like, my body, my choice, you know, uh, you know against the vaccine. And then shortly after, just like, nope. But it's we need to we need this law because uh, abortion is wrong. <laughs> like you don't have you don't have a choice. So it's just it's just a funny state. And like I said, they are political landmines, and it's very it's a a very a tough topic to talk about because it's so nuanced. You, it's like it's not real black and white. You can't just make simple decisions. Yeah, um, you know, and for me, I, I think that's an excellent point. I think, you know, the thing that's really been sitting with me around that is if, in fact, we have, you know, decided that we want to um, protect, you know, life, um, then we have to make sure that we're, you know, following that canary all the way into the mine, right? And what does it take for that baby to then be healthy and safe, right? And not just during pregnancy, but after birth. And, you know, the reality of the situation is those who, you know, 
are going to be the most impacted are people who probably have the least amount of support and resources. So what does it look like to ensure that those children are physically, mentally, emotionally healthy? They have access to quality education. You know, they have access to um early childhood education and healthy food. And so there's so much that's tied to it. So, okay, great. We're going to do that. We're going to say, you know, that, you know, babies' lives matter, but everybody's life matters. And the reality is that some people come to the table um, further behind. Mm -hmm. Um, And equity looks like giving them what they need so that we're all able to have, you know, similar quality, quality of life. Yeah. Well, Nakini, I think that's a, a great way to end the conversation. I appreciate your time. I think the work you're doing and, you know, your organizations that you're involved in are very important. Um, so I'm rooting for y'all and I, I can't wait to put this one out and, uh, and help represent. So it was awesome. Thank you so much, Jonathan, for, um, smoking me out. <laughs> no, absolutely.